0: Good morning, church. I'm Nathaniel. I'm going to be reading from Isaiah, and I would love for you to read along with me. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred Beyond human semblance, and from his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him The iniquity of us all. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Nathaniel. So, we are as a family reading Isaiah and digging into it and meditating on it and um, discovering that the Bible is anything but boring. That this book comes to life when you come to it in faith and in interest and uh, so we want to invite you, if this is your first Sunday with us, want to invite you into Isaiah with us, dig in with us, Uh, welcome to our family, this is a a family gathering, a a gathering of disciples. Uh, that's what the church is, who have been adopted by God's grace. And we want you to feel very welcome. Everybody's welcome at the table. And, um, and just want to encourage you to dig in. Like, for the next several weeks, between now and Easter, we're going to be in Isaiah 53. It is anything but boring. Like, it's amazing what's happening. In fact, I would say, put, put Isaiah 53, the end of 52, through chapter 53, on your top 10 all-time scripture list, like the pa- one of the top 10 lists you're going to know, read, memorize, meditate, hand to your children, teach your children, hand to your grandchildren, teach your grandchildren, like make it part of your family life. This, this passage is amazing. It rises to the top 10, not just because it is the most frequently quoted Old Testament chapter in the New Testament, though it is but because in it we meet this man the suffering servant we meet a man whose life we're like we're drawn into his life because of how he handles suffering what he does with it and what he can do to somehow answer all suffering for all time each of us come today with deep shame or anxiety about something or we've been wronged or mistreated or we're relentlessly driven to perfect ourselves or we're trying to control the world around us including our family and and whatever we can to exercise self sovereignty like we're all here because we're all jacked up we're all trying to figure out how to how to do this thing called life and we've realized we can't bring lasting change to ourselves by ourselves we just can't we've tried if someone just understood If someone just understood my problem, like where I live, like what happened to me, well, someone does. And that someone is the subject of this book, and he's especially the subject of this song. I'm calling it a song because it's one of the four servant songs in Isaiah. From 42 through 53, there's four distinct songs laced throughout that section. The first one's in 42, the last one's here in 53. And it's a poem, it's a song, it's about about a man. These these songs are about a servant that God calls his own servant. Behold, my servant. And what's especially interesting about this fourth song that we're going to study over the next several weeks is that he's the suffering servant. The suffering servant that Nathaniel just read about. And what I want to do is make a case today that that is Jesus of Nazareth, the same man who walked the shores of Galilee with Peter, James, John, and Andrew, and, and made a fire and ate fish and changed the world. That's the suffering servant we're talking about today. So let me give you a little bit of a sense of how this is going to unfold. I have a picture I'm gonna show you, but not quite yet. Mike's gonna hold on the picture for just a second. I wanna do a little setup. So I said five stanzas. Did I say that there are five stanzas in this song? The first stanza is at the end of chapter 52. Each stanza has three verses. So five stanzas, three verses each. Are you with me? The first one is the end of 52. Really, the chapter break should be up there at the end of 52. That's where chapter 53, I think, should really begin. That's the first stanza. The second stanza is chapter 53, verses one, two, and three, and then the next three verses and so on, all five stanzas. All right, with that in mind, let me throw this picture on the board. I think it'll help you a little bit to see what's going on here. So these five stanzas trace the story of the gospel. And under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, Isaiah, 700 years before Christ, sketches for us the beautiful story of the gospel in this fourth servant song. So, think about this image on the board as the sending, coming, living, dying, rising life of Christ. The story of the gospel. And if you think of it that way, you'll see each stanza has its place in this trajectory from humiliation to exaltation. The first stanza um, is kind of a, like a trailer to the whole story, like a table of contents, like a, an introduction to the book. So I'm putting it at the top to start the whole thing, number one. And, and so we're going to see in just a second that verses 13, 14, and 15 of the previous chapter introduce us to the gospel story beautifully. The second stanza takes us from his birth into his adulthood and his suffering. The fourth stanza gets us right to the death and the burial of Jesus. The fifth stanza takes us to the resurrection. Now, we seem to be missing a number here. Are you with me? Are we missing a number? Anybody catch that? You got that? What number is it? Three. Three. Here it is. In the middle of the song, the center of the song, is the hidden reason for his suffering. And we're going to look at that next week. We're going to think about the reason for his suffering. And a little preview, you're the reason for his suffering. He came to suffer for us. So when we get into that middle stanza, we're going to see so explicitly that he bore our shame and sin and sorrow for us. But that's next week. So today, first and second stanza. Next week, third and fourth stanza. And Easter Sunday, fifth stanza, resurrection celebration. That's where we're heading. I hope this makes sense to you. All right, thanks, Mike. I'm gonna go to the first main point, the Gospel of Isaiah. So the one here is at the top of the image, and we're just thinking big picture. um, And I'm calling it the Gospel of Isaiah because it functions like uh, an introduction to the whole song here, okay? All five stanzas verse 13 join me right there Nathaniel just read this behold my servant this first stanza is in the voice of God God is speaking God speaks in the first stanza and the last stanza the voice of God is is the way we understand behold my servant God is speaking here and he says This is my man, this is my servant, behold, my servant shall act wisely, he shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, circle, if you like marking or or, or making notes, or you're taking notes in a journal, circle that word, behold, you see that? Don't move too quickly past it. Behold, this is my servant. It's kind of like God saying, okay, hey, attention here, I want to show you something. I'm inviting you into a vision of accomplishment. I want you to see that this is going to be successful because it's not going to sound successful at first. Watch and see what my servant will do. Watch and see what my servant will do because you would expect a Messiah of power and authority to come in and just kind of level the place and say, look, I'm in charge, new sheriff in town, here's how it's going to happen. But that's not what happens. He will be high, verse 13, he will be raised, he will be lifted up, he shall be exalted, but not before he is utterly humiliated. And this causes the kings of the earth to shut their mouths they've never seen anything like it verse 15 his exaltation will come only after he's humiliated that's why verse 14 describes him as marred and disfigured and humiliated beyond human resemblance people who teach the Bible and say of verse 14 that this prefigures, that this predicts the suffering of Christ, His beating and His abuse and, and, and being crushed into an unrecognizable mass of flesh before the cross and on the cross. People who teach that, that from this passage the prophecy of the cross is fulfilled are exactly right. This is, I think, a prediction of the cross of Jesus. And everything that happens to him up to that point, 700 years before it happens, 700 or more. But that is not all that's going on here. This is not just a prophecy about him being beaten, crushed, and put on a cross. This is not just a prophecy about that. Jesus experienced a whole life of suffering. It's not like Jesus showed up in Jerusalem to be crucified and it hit him all of a sudden, oh, now I'm going to have to pay for sin, suffering, and shame. No way. His whole life he's aware of this. When the Bible says he grew in wisdom and stature, it means he was growing in his human understanding of the brokenness of this world. He was starting to bear the weight of your shame as a 14-year-old young man. Keenly aware that he would set his face toward Jerusalem. I take this to mean that all suffering is at work here, physical, mental, spiritual, increasingly during his earthly life. The point here is that the servant of God, my servant, behold, my servant, is gonna demonstrate something. He's not demonstrating his own giftedness, his own attractiveness, his own strength, power, and ability. The very opposite is the case. God will exalt him. God will exalt this suffering servant. It's Philippians chapter 2, straight up. Listen to this. Have this mind in you, who, uh, which is yours in Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or cling to, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself even further by becoming obedient to death. And, and then he humbled himself even further than that by becoming by, by, by dying on a cross. Therefore, God what? Highly exalted him. Do you see the shape? Do you see the shape? The organizing principle of the gospel right? The humiliation and exaltation of Christ. It's the organizing principle of the gospel, and it should be the organizing principle of your life. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled every time. You might not see it immediately, but whoever exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself for my sake, Jesus says, he will be exalted. That's the way the kingdom of God works. That's the way the gospel works. And you and I want humiliation and exaltation be the organizing principle of our lives. The Christian tradition then reads Isaiah 53 as an explicit messianic prophecy of Jesus. It's true We really believe that Jesus was being referred to, spoken of, predicted way back when in Isaiah 53. It perfectly predicts what happened to him in his righteous life, his unjust rejection by his own people, his suffering, his passion, his death, burial, resurrection. So the first stanza introduces us to the whole idea of the gospel in the Old Testament, even. Isn't that amazing? The gospel was preached beforehand. Paul would say in Galatians, the gospel was preached beforehand, right? In Abraham, Abraham was preaching it. Guess who else was preaching it? Isaiah was preaching it. So, stanza number one. But before we go to the second stanza, let me say this. Some of us, very well intended, probably to help our children, I think, I I know that's the case, Have reduced the gospel to a real simple expression Jesus died for our sins. And it's a true expression, it's accurate. Jesus died for our sins. So that's what we teach our children. Who is Jesus? What did he come to? Jesus died for our sins. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus died for our sins. But that is a really limited perspective. And you can even kind of call it to mind in the image that we just had on the board. He did not just die for your sins. Jesus did not just come to pay the penalty for your sins so that you could get a ticket stamped today for heaven way down there somewhere, out there. He didn't just come to die for your sins. He came to heal your shame right now, today. He came to settle your anxious heart. He came to step into the world uh, of rejection that you know. He came to free you from the approval of other people. Like, he came to do so many things. Mike, if you can flash the picture back up there one more time. He came down from the beginning to enter your world, not just to pay for your sins. And that is where the second stanza takes us, into his birth and life. And suffering. Let's, let's start in verse 1 with me of chapter 53 for this second stanza. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Look at this. The second stanza is no longer in the voice of God. Who do you think is talking? This is the voice of a believer. So this next stanza is the voice of a believer among those who do not believe. Who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So this is the voice of a believer among those who do not believe. It's the voice of Isaiah. It's the voice of the remnant. It's the voice of those in exile. It's the voice of those discovering the gospel turns everything upside down. Everything the world thinks is one way, God says, no, it's the other way. Who would believe that the arm, Like okay, so, the arm of the Lord, second part of that verse, you see it? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who would believe that the arm of the Lord flexes its muscles through humility and meekness and gentleness and healing and forgiveness? Who would believe that? Like, who would believe that God is showing up to make a point and make a statement and flex his muscles and, and, and say, the arm of the Lord is here. Who would believe that it's happening like it's happening? This is exactly what John writes about in chapter 12 of his gospel when Jesus is teaching And his disciples are are really not clear on this and and they're they're having a hard time processing it and Jesus says, look, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it can't bring life. I'm telling you about what's about to happen to me. I'm gonna go die to make this possible. And after Jesus teaches a little bit further along in chapter 12, it says, after Jesus taught these things, he went away and they didn't believe. And John makes a point in his gospel by quoting Isaiah chapter 53, this exact verse, chapter 53, verse 1. They didn't believe because Isaiah said they weren't going to believe. He came to his own and his own would not receive him. And there he is literally explaining the beauty of the gospel and they can't hear it, they won't believe. Who on earth would believe that the arm of the Lord is here, the strength of God is here, the strength of God is going to go and die on a cross? The arm of the Lord is going to flex his muscles like this? rather than like this? Who'd believe that? Who would believe that you could be saved through a man who would give up his life without a fight? It's mind-blowing. Humiliation and exaltation is the organizing principle of the gospel. It should be the organizing principle of every life, of every disciple. Here's the second verse, verse two. For he grew up before him like a young plant. The he there is the suffering servant. He grew up before God, the him is God. For he grew up before God like a young plant. The first thing that made it hard to look at the servant and see him as the strong arm of the Lord was that he was absolutely, completely ordinary. Nothing impressive about him at all. A man who grew up before God, ordinary and quite unimpressive. Have you ever felt ordinary and quite unimpressive? Like just in life. You ever felt just like, Man, I'm just super regular. That's the amazing thing about Jesus. Jesus did not show up. He, Jesus didn't show up 6'6", six, six, V'd out in golden bronze. He came, super ordinary appearance. Very regular, a young plant. Grew up, it says. He grew before God, like from, from seed to stalk, he was plainly and truly human, like a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Isaiah 11. He had a natural, growth cur- a natural growth curve that would have made any pediatrician proud. Like he was just a regular guy. And he had a natural human ancestry, traced. Look at what it says like a root out of dry ground, tied to a traceable human ancestry. And still in verse two, it says he matured and grew up and again was remarkably unimpressive in his, fig- in his physical stature. No bodily form, it says. No form or majesty. that w- He wasn't Saul. He wasn't the obvious choice. He wasn't voted most likely to succeed in 11th grade. He wasn't the prom, he wasn't the king, prom king. He wasn't like, he wasn't that person that you thought was, um, he had no bodily form that that was remarkable. He had no majesty, no royal pedigree about him. He was not beautiful that we should desire him. Read, he was not handsome. He was not attractive. People were not, like he was not the guy when you left the party or you left the, the, the gathering, you left uh, beat ups, and, and you're like, oh man, that guy was real. Like when he came into the room, he was so cool. Like everybody was, man, I was, like that guy. Oh, I, I want to be like, man, that guy was so, that's not how you felt with him. He was not physically impressive. Oh, everybody who's not physically impressive went, thank you, Jesus. Have I confessed that I've always wanted to be taller? Have I said that publicly? Have you heard this story? So, Have you heard the story about me wanting to be taller? Yes or no? I, help me out here, no? Oh, man. We have so many issues, John. Where do I start? Why did Jesus come like this? I'll tell you that story later. Another time. Why did Jesus come like this? Because... Man looks on the outward appearance, fill in the blank, but God looks at the heart. God looks at the heart. He's coming for everybody. He's not coming for the cool people. He's not coming for the successful people. He's not coming for the impressive people. Jesus comes for everyone. He had to come this way or God doesn't have any integrity. I want you to hear the gospel today. Jesus came, not just to save you from your sins, but to prove that what you look like on the inside is far more important than what you look like on the outside. He's the only one who can restore you, your dignity, your maturity, your beauty from the inside out. He's the one who's gonna work the beauty of God into your heart and soul. And when that happens, this is really crazy, but it happens, the more beautiful you get through the power of God and Christ and the work of the Spirit on the inside, the more the beauty actually comes on the outside. You become a more beautiful person. People wanna be around you. People are interested in you. you. You've got a disposition that's far more agreeable and, and your life becomes beautified and it gets better as you age. It's amazing. A couple of ladies were talking about, you know, don't know whether we should move to Arizona or not. It's a lot more comfortable out there. You know, as you age in Arizona, dry, you know, dry climate. It's super comfortable, but the wrinkles come faster. So, what do we do? Should we go or not? Do we want to feel good or, or, or do we want more wrinkles? This was a great conversation I heard. Tough choice. Amazingly, your outward beauty can grow in Christ when it starts with deep, inward beauty through gospel change. Jesus came in this way to prove that he came for everyone and that he's working to remake every single person into his own image for his glory. Verse 3. I'm going to go a little further into his life, further down. Right? So sometimes we say, like C.S. Lewis, further up and further in. Do you remember that, further up and further in from Lewis? Well, this is kind of like that, except it's down. Further down and further in. And we go into his rejection. He was despised and rejected by men. All through his life, he was misunderstood. Too religious for some, blasphemous to others. His own people legally condemned him to die by crucifixion. Even today when you bring up Jesus in a conversation, people roll their eyes and they mock at him. I think I can, I think I can put up with a lot of foul language. Um, like I don't see it as quite as morally uh, horrific as some people do. So I, I can put up with, a fair amount of, of foul language. And I do see it getting more and more vulgar, vulgar when you move from certain words to the S word to the F word and all that. So yeah, there's definitely a spectrum of vulgarity. I'm not saying I like it. I'm just saying I can tolerate that as I'm interacting with people who um, just don't know the Lord or just, just the way they talk. They don't know the Lord. They talk that way. They don't think really anything of it. But when people say Jesus Christ in a mocking, disparaging way, that one hits me the hardest. Um, you know, when it just becomes the most frequent use of cursing on the job site, when you hear Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, over and over again in a negative cursing kind of way. To me, that's in a different category than just somebody who slipped into a really unhealthy habit of just saying this and that and this, and they just, like they just don't even, it's, it's almost like they don't know other words. Like, it's just a limited vocabulary. And I, I'm not saying that I, I'm, I'm saying to understand what's happening. It's just a limited vocabulary. Don't, don't think less of an unbeliever because they have a limited vocabulary. But I think when people despise his name directly, that, that does hit me hard. Now don't get mad at them. Don't be angry at them. Don't go, don't go and just rail on them like so here's how so I go to witness to somebody who I'm in a context he's just dropping Jesus's name all the time like over and over again in a disparaging way if I come against him with anger and and judgment about that I'm going to start undermining the very Jesus I want to introduce to him so be careful with that be careful that you're not mad at unbelievers for acting like They've never met Christ, because they haven't. Jesus experienced way more of this than you and I will ever experience. Like, that's what you need to be thinking about when you see it happening. When you see or hear that kind of talk, it's that they're despising and rejecting him. You know, so he was despised and rejected. Perhaps that's what it means. I'm thinking especially about his name. I guess it's equally possible that they don't even know who or what they're talking about. So I'm just trying to say don't be mad at him. Does that make sense? He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus, look at this, Jesus experienced sorrow and grief during his lifetime. At the relational level, he was deeply disturbed and broken when his dude, when his bro, when his guy, Lazarus, died. He wept uncontrollably. When he got there uh, when he's discovering the death of Lazarus in real time, he's feeling deeply broken. He, yes, he feels the weight of the cosmic grand scope of, and weight of sin and suffering, and so it causes him to mourn and say things like, blessed are those who mourn. But he also felt it at the level of friendship. My bro is gone and the family if Jesus if you had been here he wouldn't have died and you can just see the brokenness of Jesus he knew sorrow he knew it he experienced it we didn't come to church today because we had to we didn't come to church today because it's a good thing to do We didn't come to church today because it's good for business networking. We came to church to meet Jesus who so identifies with our grief and suffering that he alone can solve it for us. Like we came to gather together and confess as disciples, man of sorrows. What a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners, that's me, to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Like, that's why I came to church. I came to church to know the man of sorrows, to rejoice in him rescuing us. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Well, like friends with grief. Who are you friends with? He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. One other thing before we leave this verse. Notice the word despised, despised and rejected. I think we often use the word like we think belittling and mocking and an and active mocking of someone, an active, you know, belittling of them, but that's really not the sense of the text here. Despised in this context means more like He's of zero importance, not even seeing him as a person. He's a loser. When mankind, even his own people, especially his own people, saw him, they said, Man, I don't have time for that. Men hid their faces from him, the next line. Men hid their faces from him means they didn't want face-to-face contact with a worthless, unimpressive person. Like, he, he's not important, he's not important, so I'm going over here. This, he's worthless, unimpressive, unworthy of their attention. He was despised, not even viewed as a person, by his own people. I want you to think back to a time when you experienced shame or super obvious unimportance. Not even recognized as a person. Shame that you didn't deserve. I want you to think back to a time when when you experienced some shame you didn't deserve. We're going to talk next week about shame we do deserve, but we're not there yet. So right now, I want you to think about shame you didn't deserve back to high school or middle school or at work or in marriage, some kind of event, some kind of experience where you, where you shame, you had shame that you did not deserve, you didn't bring it on yourself, but you experienced pretty significant shame. Think about that with me. I talked with a friend recently, and we just got into some good gospel talk, and And kind of out of nowhere, he confessed that for years, like for a long season of his life, for years, he was self-conscious about how large his head was. It was too big for his body. He was ashamed of his own physical features. And it really kind of blew my mind because I knew this person. I've known him for a long time. I never thought that about him. I never looked at him and, and thought, man, he's disproportionate. He thought that about himself. He said, every time I looked in the mirror, for years, every time I would go meet a new person, I didn't like the way I looked. I was ashamed of of what I looked like. And he carried that with him. People must be constantly staring at my head and thinking, what's wrong with him? And just broke my heart to think that this image-bearer who I have known for years and seems to me to be a handsome person was carrying shame. You don't know the shame that's floating around in this room and in the previous service. We don't know. no matter what your shame is tied to deserved or undeserved overly self-conscious about your appearance or shame that that you experience because someone else did something to you whatever the case I want you to hear the gospel this morning Jesus came to take your shame and put it on him and give you acceptance and innocence and renewal as an image bearer that's the gospel like there's no shame that's too big that Jesus can't interrupt it and stop it in its tracks shame for acceptance are you with me shame for innocence that's the heart of the gospel I'm going to, Jesus wants to, Jesus is saying to you, I want to take your shame and I'm going to take it on myself in my suffering. In fact, I lived my whole life for this. I experienced some shame so i know exactly what it would feel like. I'm going to take all of your shame onto myself. I'm going to go make a pleasing offering to the Father and we're going to turn back all the shame." That's amazing. I'm gonna heal you. I'm gonna give you peace. I'm gonna free you from the need for other people to approve of you or say things to you or make you feel good about yourself. I'm gonna so free you from that. It's gonna be amazing. But you need to give it to me. You can do that by saying in a simple prayer, by faith, Jesus, I trust you with my shame. I can't fix it, here I am. If you want to study, or if you want to uh, just get further into the idea, maybe not even a formal study, but if you want to get further into the idea that this is why Jesus came, that his life was one constant descent so that he could say in Matthew chapter 11, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, burdened, weighted down with your sin struggles, with your shame, with your suffering, I'll give you rest. This, uh, this book that I want to recommend, it's my, it's my new favorite book, great resource, Gentle and Lowly. We've got them available out here. It, is, it will help you to press in to, to who Jesus is, why he came, why he was so accessible, why he came down, why he, what he wants to do with your life and how you can trust him. I want to encourage you to, to, to check it out. Those of you who are interested, this just might be what you need right now to really understand the gospel on this matter. Here's one thing that Dane Ortland says. I'll, I'll close with this. you're going to be tempted to clean yourself up before you come to Jesus because that's what we do. But don't do that. Open yourself up to Him. That's all He needs. Like, just open yourself up to Him. That's all He needs. In fact, it's the only thing He can work with. Verse 28 of Matthew 11 tells us explicitly who qualifies for fellowship with Jesus. All who labor and are heavy laden. You don't need to unburden yourself or collect yourself and gather yourself up and then come to Jesus. Your very burden is what qualifies you to come to him. Your, uh, no payment is required. He says, I will give you rest. His rest is a gift, not a transaction. This is an incredible gospel resource. I want to recommend it to you. I wanna invite you to trust Christ today. I wanna invite you to press further into Isaiah 53 with us, discover the suffering servant. In fact, so I'd like to pray with you. Will you you pray with me right now? And I wanna encourage you to take just a moment, those of you who are willing and kind of ready to do this, maybe you're not ready and that's okay, Just give us a second. But those of you who are, take the shame, take the sin struggle, and roll it on to the beautiful, strong yoke of Christ right now. To the one who says, to the suffering servant who says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Lord Jesus, I don't know what to do with this, but I'm tired of carrying it. Will you please take it from me? Say something like that to Jesus. Right now, In the quietness this place. And we're going to sing. And as we sing, continue to make it your prayer. Lord, we entrust our lives to you. Help us to be disciples, faithful, humble us, that we might see you exalted in our lives. In this we pray in Christ's name, amen.